So, Jay, I try not to do this because I know it's silly and hackneyed, but I was thinking about the blue team and the gold team, and I was wondering, who do you think would win between the two of them? What do you mean, think, Miles? I absolutely know who wins. How so? I did the math. Okay, so who wins? It depends on Jean. Please elaborate. Okay, if she's Phoenix, gold team wins easily. Well, that makes sense. If she's just Jean Grey, blue team wins by a pretty substantial margin. Okay, that seems arguable. And if she's Marvel Girl, it's a tie. Wait, what? I mean, I get why Phoenix makes a difference, but why would Marvel Girl be more powerful than Jean Grey? Common nouns. I'm not following. They're worth the same amount, but Jean Grey is a proper noun, so automatically disqualified. What difference would that make in a fight? A fight? Oh, I I was going by point value. By, like, power level? In Scrabble. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 251 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. If this show goes for 1,000 episodes, we're about due for a quarter-life crisis. I mean, I'm, I've already decided that I'm going to be spending mine on Scrabbles. Entirely reasonable. So, yeah, speaking of that cold open. Okay, Jay, I like your cold opens, but that one was, I don't know if special's the right word. So there is actually context for it, which we're going to get to later on in this episode. Um, or at least what got me thinking about this. But I can tell you how I did the math. And also admit that I fudged it a little bit. Specifically, I let Marvel Girl count as one word, even though it's two common nouns, that probably couldn't be played in the same turn. I mean, it could just be a compound word, like, you know, boy toy. Yeah, um, so... The deal is, I went through all the X-Men who had common noun code names, and I'm counting Jean, Jean, the name Jean Grey as a proper noun because it is her name in this context. And I you know, calculated up their Scrabble point values, added them all together. Um, there are two notable exceptions. Psylocke is disqualified because Psylocke isn't actually a word, and obviously Jean Grey is. Now, here's a great detail, though. If Jean Grey were not disqualified, the point value for her legal name would be the same as the point value for Phoenix. That's kind of thematically beautiful. Isn't it? Wow. But yeah, um, if, if she's not Phoenix, and depending on whether Marvel Girl gets used or not, Blue Team really solidly wins. It, uh, the, the point totals, based on the names they're using at the time of the issues we're looking at here, are 71 to 55. Well, I mean, I guess to the Blue Team's credit, Colossus has gone by this point from the Gold Team, so there's that. Oh, I included Colossus. Oops. Okay, well, let's just say, like, a little bit before Fatal Attractions, then. Yeah, I, including including Colossus, um, if, if you take him out, then, then Blue Team pretty much wins no matter what, because the widest margin by which Gold Team can win is three points. Fiendish. I feel like we should get 538 on this whole thing. I don't know. Now, I should add that I'm also ignoring board layout issues and possible intersections, plus the fact that some of these names are probably not actually going to be spellable out during a Scrabble game. But I do feel like I've stumbled across a really, really good system for quantifying superheroes. And I, I, I put it through the usual test. I put who would win in a fight gimmicks through, um, and it passed. So, which is you know, uh, Wonder Woman beats Superman beats Batman. Well, anyway, we're not here to just talk about Scrabble. Although, like you said, Jay, that will come up again. We're here to talk about X-Men. And Scrabble, we've been talking about X-Men. Now, we are we are back onto, I believe, X-Men Blue, this issue. That is just straight-up X-Men, not uncanny. Exactly, although by this point it's arguable whether the blue team and the gold team even exist as such. But we are indeed following Adjectiveless X-Men, written by Fabian Nicieza, with mostly previously blue team characters. So let's go ahead and see what happened previously on X-Men. Everything is terrible. Right? After an almost comically excessive series of family tragedies, Colossus defected to Magneto's acolytes. 
after which Magneto ripped the metal out of Wolverine's skeleton, and Xavier ripped the mind out of Magneto's brain. Meanwhile, everyone's favorite blade-covered whiny supervillain Strife may be dead, but he's left behind his Legacy Virus, a mutant-targeting AIDS allegory that's already killed a number of B-list heroes and villains and infected even more. Including Psylocke's confusing sort-of-twin sort-of-mashup buddy Revanche. Because things weren't dire enough yet, Professor Xavier recently took in bloodthirsty murderer Victor Creed, aka Sabretooth. Whom he's attempting to rehabilitate using a combination of telepathy, tough love, and sword fights. And that takes us right to X-Men number 27, a song of mourning, a cry of joy. This introduces a character who is mostly going to be a big deal in the as yet non-existent series X-Men. She will be running around with Nate Gray, who also doesn't exist yet, for a fairly long time to come. But for now, she's just someone with a really, really poorly conceived shirt and Delirium's word balloons from Sandman. So who's responsible for this strange combination of traits that you just described? Uh, this is Fabian Cesar writing, pencils by Richard Bennett, inks by Bob Feichak and Scott Hanna, and colors by Joe Rosas. And we've of course seen Richard Bennett most famously on the Uncanny X-Men number 303 pencils. He's done a couple uh, issues here and there as well, and I gotta say, now that he's not doing something that's just as straight-up feelings-based as UXM 303 was, I feel a lot better about his art. You know, I feel entirely nothing about his art, because as soon as you finish reading this issue, you've got Andy Kubert, who just sort of eclipses everything around him. Valid point, yeah. So, Threnody, you mentioned improbable clothing, yes, we'll absolutely get to that, strange powers, what about her name, and what about Scrabble? Alright, so here, we'll turn it over to her introduction from the narration. Mary Bakerman, who lives over the grocery store, called her Threnody because the woman was always, quote, crying on about something or other, unquote. Mary plays a lot of Scrabble. Triple word score. The name stuck. Threnody, as a word, means a lamentation for the dead. And so Mary Bakerman had no idea just how ridiculously on the nose this name would be. Also... It's an odd choice given what we know about Mary, because while Threnody is worth 15 points in Scrabble, 45 if you manage to land it on a triple word score, and 95 if you use up all of your tiles in the process, it's technically a synonym for Requiem, which would serve you a little better. Jay, you have officially, thoroughly uh, outplayed my calculation of the BMI of a Celestial many, many episodes ago. Congratulations. Anytime. So what are Threnody's powers? So Threnody can feel mutants dying of the legacy virus, specifically. Real specific power set. She absorbs the energy of their deaths, specifically their death energy. This is a thing in the Marvel Universe. And then when she's got enough of it, she explodes. Yeah, I mean, she's fine. This isn't like a worst X-Men ever situation, but the people around her are decidedly not. She does an explosion. Now, we've seen Threnody before. Very briefly, she was listed in Strife's Strike File, or Strife's Burn Book, back around Executioner's Song. That was a while back, too. Sure was. I mean, they were planning the 90s pretty early on into the decade. Is she the last edition from that? Uh, we haven't yet met Holocaust. I think he'll be the final edition, and even then, it won't be the same universe version of him that was in Strife's Strike File. Oh, dang, yeah. Threnody is also, other than Holocaust, the one of those guys with the most direct ties to Age of Apocalypse, since she's going to be most closely linked to Nate Gray, who of course is a refugee from that world. And speaking of worlds where characters look a little um, unexpectedly over the top in their fashion choices, we gotta talk about what Threnody's wearing. She's supposed to be a very troubled homeless woman, which fits plot-wise, but that look! What is even going on with that look?! Miles, once upon a time in 1991, Richard Bennett. I guess so, but did Bennett design Threnody? I mean, she was around back in the day before Richard Bennett was working on X-Books. But yeah, she has this lace-up shirt that reveals almost her entire chest. She has incredibly sharp, elaborate, they almost look like uh, caps at the end of her fingers more than fingernails. Uh, tons and tons of jewelry, gloves that go all the way up to her upper arms. Miles... We didn't hang out in the same places on the weekends in high school all the time, 
So what is obvious to me may not be obvious to you. This is someone who got dressed by sneaking through the back of Renaissance fair tents. You know, suddenly everything makes sense. Okay, I'll allow it. Yeah. As, as we're talking about mutants with their over-the-top fashion sense, we're going to be seeing someone who is a major stab from the past, and that is Infectia. Yeah, she was back from X-Factor number 28 to 31, and then she made another brief appearance in X-Factor number 55. She was that lady who seduced Iceman and then captured Beast and used her powers to make him smart again and blue, but normally her powers would just turn random men that she was all sexy at into big monsters who would eventually kind of disintegrate. She was, I mean, a creepy villain. She did terrible things, but she was a fun villain. Now... She's having a lot less fun. She is at the Los Angeles County General Hospital, and she is dying of the legacy virus. And she is the center and the context of this. And, and Nasesa does a terrific job humanizing her and giving her pers- more personality. But I think that the character whose story this is almost more than hers is Hank McCoy's is Beast's. Because this issue for me marks a really distinct turning point for Hank, and one that's going to follow him really to the present day, which is is, is basically him hitting a major, major moral event horizon and going over. And going over in a direction that, in, in a direction and with momentum that has remained incredibly consistent in the nearly 30 years since. It's interesting that you describe it that way because within the context of the issue itself, we see this as Hank McCoy successfully, in his eyes, balancing the logical and emotional sides of his identity. But we'll get to that. What it actually is is Hank McCoy learning to Xavier-style lie to himself. He is... I mean, I I think... I I talk about Gene as Xavier's heir apparent in a lot of ways, but I think if there's any of the X-Men who has learned and expanded on Xavier's ability to justify his own subjective judgment calls as morally absolute, it's Hank McCoy. Uh, Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, But how do we get there? What's going on in this hospital room as Infectia lays dying? Well, Infectia is attended by a doctor who is absolutely willing to work with legacy virus patients, which it turns out not not all are, and one who specifically has been concerned with with mutants for most of his career. This is Dr. Nathan Milbury. And it really bothers me that the X-Men don't catch that it's sinister because this is one of his known aliases by this point. Well, how known is it? I mean, the two times we've seen that name, one of them was in Murder World, and only Shatterstar was there for that, and he doesn't really talk to the X-Men, and the other was when Cyclops was in Alaska, and he went there to run away from an awkward conversation, so I'd imagine he wouldn't want to talk about what happened. But these are also people who were on the team with Cyclops over Inferno, which is when he sort of went back and revisited the Nightmare Orphanage, and whether or not he figured out that Sinister was behind it, the name of the guy running it came up. Okay, I'd totally forgotten that. I know we'd gotten the ter- the name Nathan uh, of the little boy that bullied Scott in the orphanage. I hadn't recalled that Milbury was already revealed at that point. Almost, I may be mistaken, but I'm almost certain that Dr. Milbury came up. But in any case, I, maybe maybe none of them have phones, but I still feel like they should know by now. Well, initially, the doctor actually seems pretty cool, and for once, he actually draws the overt parallel between AIDS and the legacy virus. As a physician, I deplored the hesitancy my profession took in rallying to fight the spread of AIDS. I'd rather not see the same thing repeated here. Oh, so that's pretty cool. It is, and it's there. there's something that I, I'm not going to include all of in this episode because I'm still waiting to hear back about permission to post it from the site, but a listener wrote in with a really long and really interesting um, set of thoughts and history related to the legacy virus is a very, very incomplete allegory for AIDS in, I think, a lot of the same ways that the mutant metaphor is is a very incomplete and flawed allegory for the things that it stands in for. If by the time this goes up, um, I've heard back, then that will be posted on the site with the digital companion to this episode. And I highly recommend clicking through and checking because it's really, really interesting. And it's something that I feel really privileged to have gotten the chance to read and to know not only from history and the context of news and things I heard growing up, but but from someone who can speak to it firsthand. 
Oh, that sounds fascinating, yeah. But meanwhile, after Dr. Nathan Milbury draws some blood from Infectia, he heads out, shortly after which the nurse comes in and says, hey, time to draw some blood from Infectia, because, yep, that's right, Milbury was not a doctor on staff there, and just as the X-Men who are there, who are, uh, at the time, Beast, Iceman, and Rogue, are trying to figure out what's going on, there's this wonderful panel of just the trail of Sinister's ribbony cape still on panel as he walks off. God, I gotta think he does that stuff on purpose. Oh, it's Mr. Sinister, of course he does. Now, Infecta came to L.A. to see Dr. Gordon Lefferts, a bioresearcher who was also a mutant, and who, it turns out, had died of the legacy virus before she could get there. If that name sounds familiar to you, that's because Gordon Lefferts was patient zero. He is the guy who was Sinister's assistant, who was the one who opened the canister from Strife. Well, the X-Men don't know that part, so they just head off to find Lefferts' lab. Infectious still has the address, and that turns out to be, even though Lefferts isn't there because he's, you know, dead, where Threnody has been holing up. She refers to Lefferts as the bubble man, and then later on to the legacy patients in general as bubble people, which Hank concludes is, is a reference to the, the blistered lesions on their skin. And she totally, totally has delirium word balloons. Like, they're not even similar. They're, they're the same word balloons. Oh, man. We asked Fabian Nicieza about Adam X's word balloons when we talked to him last episode. I wish we'd thought to ask about Threnody's. I did double-check character first appearances, and delirium had been around for a while at this point. Oh, okay, so maybe she just sounds like delirium. Whatever delirium sounds like. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I think the answer is probably something synesthetic like chartreuse that's probably about right well beast and iceman stick around to go through leffert's research well beast goes through the research iceman is just sort of bored and rogue goes off to find threnody she feels something of a kinship with this young troubled woman who can't control her powers and threnody meanwhile can feel it can feel the energy building up again um i assume as infecta is is getting sicker and dying nearby yeah and This series of scenes right here, where we see a lot of Rogue and a lot of Threnody, this really showcases uh, an aspect of Richard Bennett's art. Richard Bennett draws women being sexy basically all the time. So even though Threnody is clearly severely psychologically troubled in a great deal of physical pain and trauma, like, every panel is, hey, look at those breasts and look at that butt. At the same time, because her other secondary mutation, one that's shared by every single woman in this comic, is that she has no spine. That said, I recall when we were talking about Jim Lee's drawing of women, and yes, I'm comparing Jim Lee to Richard Bennett, sorry Richard Bennett for that, we talked about how Jim Lee would make women look sexy, but would also make them look powerful. And I will say, Richard Bennett does draw a really badass-looking rogue, even though those drawings of rogue being badass have an emphasis on the ass. Yeah, well, now, Rogue's intervention with Threnody is is cut short by Sinister, who, weirdly enough, is here to save the day. Mr. Sinister wouldn't be Mr. Sinister if he didn't have a vaguely smug-sounding speech prepared. The cycle of pain can stop now, child. You can begin to help people instead of hurting them. You are a gifted child, Threnody though your gift is born from the pain of others. I might not be able to change that, but I can make sure your powers, your ability to feed from the energy release inherent in the breakdown of a mutant's powers, can be used for a greater good. Do you wish me to help you? And she says, yes. All right, I want to talk about the speech that Sinister just gave. Do you notice, does anything sound familiar to you about it? Oh, man. I mean, it sounds a couple kinds of familiar. You certainly have your apocalypse in there in terms of the mutant, mutant, power, power, destiny, destiny. But you also have some Charles Xavier. Gifted, gifted. Using those gifts to help others. Yeah. Rogue actually makes the point that it seems like Sinister's trying to manipulate her. And Sinister himself, since he he is the guy who's lampshading everything this issue actually brings up the comparison to Charles Xavier, which here I think is entirely apt. Um, everyone, and, and, and Threnody is into this, but as Rogue and Sinister stand off, she gets hit with sudden power overload. And with great power comes great purple narration. 
Threnody's song of mourning rips through the garbage-strewn alleyway, reaching a sadly glorious crescendo so horrific it is almost a thing of majestic beauty, an aria of pain and destruction which leaves anyone or anything within listening distance absolutely floored by it. Now, Sinister is legitimately on the side of the angels here. Like the X-Men, he wants the legacy virus stopped, although he readily and cheerfully admits that this is entirely for his own selfish ends. It's heavily implied here that Mr. Sinister himself has the legacy virus, but that's never followed up on, and it'll later, later turn out he's not exactly a mutant anyway. Is it? I did not get that from here. Oh yeah, because the X-Men are wondering why Threnody's power is built up again, and Sinister's like, well I know, but I'm never going to tell you. And later on they ask why he's doing what he's doing, and he mentions his own self-interest, and they figure, oh, you want to use her for science stuff? He's like, yeah, that's part of it. He's being very specifically evasive. But he's Sinister. He's always specifically evasive, even when he has nothing to be evasive about. That is perhaps also a valid point. He's like the, he's, you know how when you, when you play, um... When you when you play, I don't remember which Zelda game it was, but you you only moved by roll dodging. Uh, that's honestly most games where you can roll dodge. Yeah, Sinister's like that, but conversation. <laughs> Smug conversational roll dodges. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway. Beast has a perhaps surprising take on this whole thing. Rogue is completely against it. She's like, dude, you're just going to use this lady for her out-of-control powers? I've been there, it sucks. But well, he wants to use her as a bloodhound to find mutants dying of the legacy virus. And Beast says, no, no, this is fine. This makes sense. Why the hell not? The thing is, I don't think Beast is wrong here. I mean, Sinister's probably about as good at treating Threnody for her powers as Xavier would be. Whether he would or not is questionable, but he at least could. And sure enough, he's trying to cure the legacy virus. She would be a useful part of that project. And it's kind of win-win. She gets some assistance. She gets some guidance. She gets to help cure the thing that's tormenting her. I mean, all of that is questionable. And... I think what's more interesting is that this, for Hank, this is the product of having his confidence in the one thing that seemed objective really shaken. This is a man who has gone through so much upheaval and so much tumult in his life. I mean, he has, he started out looking like a regular dude. And he has changed bodies, he has had his mind go and come back, he's had his life upended repeated, repeatedly. Um, for a while, his mentor um, psychic whammied his parents into forgetting that he existed. He's had a rough time. He's hasn't had a lot of stability. The one thing that has been a common factor for him has been that science makes things make sense. And now he's coming up against something that he can't stop, that he can't even understand. Something that not only can't be punched, but can't but against which his intellect is so far useless and he's panicking. And that's why I especially like the presence of Infectia in this issue, because she was there for probably the time he was most out of control. She was there. She was the cause of him getting his mind back and having his body go bestial again, which was completely outside of his agency. So she's a nice little reminder of his lack of control in some ways. Yeah, and his simultaneous intense compassion towards her and, I mean, I, I think for Hank, compassion and ethical compromise are things that tend to go hand in hand, that he'll push really far in both directions at the same time. And so after he lets Threnody go with Sinister, much to Rogue's protestations, he disobeys medical procedure and takes Infectia out as she dies to see the sunrise, because... She's dying of the legacy virus, and we've seen how that goes with characters like Nicodemus. Some characters, when they die of the legacy virus, explode and maybe infect everyone around them, maybe just have their powers go big enough that their powers destroy everyone, everyone around them. But Beast says, no, I want to give this woman a moment's peace at the end of her life. Yeah, this is the only thing he really can do, and so he does. And luckily for him, infectious powers do not um, you turn up to 11 before she dies. She just dies quietly. Yeah, it's a really, I don't know, it's a really sweet ending to an issue that I quite liked. One of the things that Fabian Nicieza is very good at is focusing on multiple angles of the legacy virus, and I think this yeah. is one of the better issues for doing so. Yeah, agreed. 
And this is this is a story too where I'm really, really glad that it's Nisieza writing it because it's so easy to see and we're you know, and we are gonna see on and off this this just being handled terribly in the wrong hands. And he gives a lot of nuance and a lot of compassion and a lot of just humanity to a story that would have been very, very, very easily played played much worse. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to X-Men number 28, Devil in the House. Written again by Fabian Nicieza, this time penciled by Andy Hubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Joe Rosas. This cover makes me so angry. It doesn't make me angry. It upsets me. It bothers me. And this, this, isn't, this isn't like it bothers me because of what's on it. It's that it bothers me because the pose that Sabretooth and Jean are in, are, it's obviously supposed to evoke like a ballroom dance dip, but his hand is in front of her instead of under her back, but it's obviously positioned like it's supposed to ha- be around her back. And it just, every time I look at it, it just looks like something's off because of that. Like the anatomy's fine. The positioning is fine, but it's so close to another pose that's more familiar that it reads to me like a glitch. Oh, yeah, Jean Grey's totally going to fall over. I mean, she's telekinetic, so she'll catch herself. Or she could do like that time she almost fell over in an early issue of Silver Age X-Men and narrate as she levitates a piece of wood over the hole in the ground that she's about to step into. I love that scene. I love that scene so much. Yeah, that's, that's that's a memorable moment of the Silver Age. Well, anyway, this issue cover aside opens with Jubilee running through a rain-swept forest, realizing that all of the X-Men, including Wolverine, are dead, and that Sabretooth is out there, and he's coming for her. Of course, this is a dream, and Jean Grey comforts Jubilee as Jubilee wakes up screaming. And that's kind of Jean's cue to realize, all right, this whole Sabretooth being a prisoner in the mansion thing— we got to do something about this. This is terrifying and I don't like it. And it's time for an old school X-Men meetup. This is a plot line that I have a lot of trouble reading. Um, and that I should have thought about before we jumped into it. It's good. It's well-written. It's just one that's, that's got some personal resonance. Not going to go into the details, but it's, 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 it's always really weird running into those. Um, So I've got a question here because part of the issue, it's not just that Sabretooth is in the house. It's that sometime between this and and the X-Men Unlimited issue when he showed up, they've gone from let's keep him comatose in a psychic prison to "Eh, we'll just lock him up in the basement behind some lasers. I don't know that he was comatose in X-Men Unlimited number three. I think he was just being kept in a very secure part of the mansion and only granted visions of the outside world psychically or possibly Shi'ar holographically. That was unclear. Yeah, either way, he was completely restrained and he's definitely not anymore. Um, But that's kind of beside the point because it's time for a 2 a.m. senior X-Men secret meeting at Harry's hideaway. Do they have keys or is it open all night? I don't know. I mean, last call varies from city to city. Uh, Maybe in Westchester, it's really, really late. I do kind of assume that the X-Men, or at least one of them, has keys to Harry's by now. Well, in the modern era, they definitely do. That's sort of their base of operations. Right, they're living there in the modern era. But, I mean, they spend so much time there, and they've they've rebuilt it a couple times. You know, it's it's they, they got to have some kind of stake in it. I assume it's sort of like being friends with the, the gaming shop owner, and you get to stay after when, when, you're, when you're playing D&D or whatever. <laughs> right. Well... It's interesting to me who these senior X-Men are here, because Jean calls up Cyclops, Storm, and Beast. And that's three founding members of the X-Men, plus Storm. She's missing out on two other founding members, and the rest of the all-new, all-different team. To be fair, I also would absolutely invite Storm and not invite Angel or Iceman to this conversation. Valid point. And I guess Nightcrawler's off with Excalibur, and Colossus is off with the Acolytes, and Wolverine is off losing his nose somewhere, and everyone forgot Banshee existed, and Sunfire quit a million times, and Thunderbird's dead, so yeah, okay, this works. And Psylocke's got a lot going on. Yeah, well, a lot, it's true. And the characters here have a rehash of the argument from X-Men Unlimited number three that a couple of the X-Men had with Maverick, essentially about whether the idea of rehabilitating Sabretooth is worthwhile or whether it's a fool's errand and way too dangerous. I mean, I feel kind of strongly that maybe they should keep him somewhere other than the Xavier Mansion. Yeah, maybe like the, the raft or something. 
So Storm and Cyclops are with Professor X. They're talking about how, well, Rogue and Wolverine were scary people and they reformed. Not but, comparable. Well, and that's the thing. Beast and Jean think it's not comparable. Beast specifically says Sabretooth isn't a victim. He is just straight up a monster. And Jean's really wondering about Charles Xavier's judgment in general. I mean, he just erased Magneto's mind. He just had Storm steal data from the government, which to me doesn't sound like that big of a deal in the Marvel Universe, but still. I cannot describe what a relief it is to have one of Charles Xavier's adult students go, yeah, he's been acting funny. This is not good and we should talk to him. And it makes perfect sense to me that it's Jean because she's always been the most strong-willed and honestly, in some ways, the most real-world intelligent of the O5. She's also the one who is least intimidated by Charles Xavier and the only one who really sees him as anything approaching a peer at this point. Well, Xavier himself is also up in the middle of the night examining Revanche, examining the other version of Psylocke. She's still got the legacy virus, and she's still definitely dying of it, and her blisters are looking real, real rough, especially since uh, Joe Rosas either deliberately or accidentally, I'm not sure which, colors her blisters the same color as her bright purple hair, which, ugh. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with that. Um, Xavier asks if she'll stay at the mansion for treatment. Revanche has other plans. Poked and prodded like a laboratory animal? I think not. I am going to die as I have lived, Professor with the wind at my back, and blood on my hands. If the wind's going, that blood's gonna get sticky really fast. That's true, it's true. Man, Nicias is trying so hard to make revanche interesting, and I specifically wanted to include this scene in our outline because I want that too, but there's just not much to her. I mean, it's almost like there was one Psylocke's worth of character development, and now it's been split between two Psylocke's to the detriment of both. And I'm not going to say I'm glad I'm glad that Revanche is dying of the legacy virus, because that would be horrible, but I am going to say that I think Psylocke becomes a more interesting character once Revanche is not around anymore. That was an incredibly mean thing to say, and you're absolutely right. I hate being mean, but I guess I like being right. Xavier goes from treating Revanche to getting called into Sabretooth's treatment, uh, which is currently being presided over by Dr. Moira McTaggart and Banshee, and Sabretooth's treatment hasn't been going very well either. Specifically, when Psylocke went in to give him the focused totality of her psychic glow, he snuck up on her, grabbed her, kissed her, and threw her out of his weird little laser cell. There are kind of too many non-consensual kisses in this era. Like, I realize that's a very specific thing, but it's like somebody saw that uh, VJ Day picture of the sailor and the nurse, and it was like, yeah, let's just do that all the fucking time and have it be just as creepy. There was too much of that in the last era, too, honestly. there There is a lot of too much of that in X-Men. Well, fair enough. But here's the thing that bugs me about this scene, aside from that part, which is just generally creepy— one of Psylocke's first major appearances in an X-Book was when she was hunted by Sabretooth in the mansion around the Mutant Massacre, when she yeah. fought back when we first got to learn the steel she had under all of that pink taffeta. And that was like a big defining character moment for her, and it seems like a missed opportunity that that doesn't come up here. Absolutely agreed. Yeah, well, regardless, Jean and Scott take this opportunity to confront Charles Xavier about the whole Sabretooth thing and just about everything that's been going on recently. And one really nice little touch is that Jean starts to call him Professor and then switches to Charles. She does very deliberately the thing that Cyclops was unable to do even when he was called on it back in X-Men Unlimited number one. Everyone talks about how boring Jean is, how she doesn't have a well-defined personality, I would say they just watched the X-Men cartoon. Jean is fucking fascinating. She's multifaceted, incredibly clearly defined, and no more than here. Well, and this era specifically has Jean coming into her own in ways that I would say she hasn't gotten to since maybe early to mid X-Factor. Yeah, completely agree. And there's this great big debate, and Jean just calls out, Hey, Charles, I am concerned for all of these reasons, the most recent of which, but not the only one, is the Sabretooth thing. Can we talk about this? What's your motivation? And I actually really like Professor Xavier's response in defending his actions, in defending taking in Sabretooth. 
I would rather my mistakes come from trying too hard rather than not trying at all. And for better or for worse, that actually sums Charles Xavier up pretty well. Ah, uh, the sunk cost fallacy approach to ethics. I mean, I would put it a little more nicely, but yeah, maybe kind of that. Later on, there's a fantastic conversation between Scott and Jean about Logan. And no matter how you read it, like, the conversation is literally Scott being like, I totally get why you're attracted to Logan. That's very reasonable. I mean, as a short, hairy man who is admittedly significantly uh, less made of testosterone than Logan, I, I kind of get it. I mean, I like hearing these things. No, but my, my point is that either it, it's a super shippy conversation in at least two directions at once, but it's also a really kind of lovely Scott and Gene moment. Like, the right. extent to which they can have that conversation is, I think, in some ways emblematic of their relationship at its best. I completely agree, and it's also emblematic of something Nicieza does very well. I mean, we have the conversation between Jean and Xavier, we have this conversation between Scott and Jean, we have everything about emotionally available Cable after Cable comes back from the dead after Fatal Attractions. Nicieza is really good at writing adults who act like adults and communicate like adults, and I appreciate that so much. This is the most functional the Summers family will ever be. Enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, it's all downhill from here. Oh, yeah. So, Xavier takes his leave after making his kind of good point about the way his motives work, and Moira calls in at that point saying, hey, Sabretooth's all messed up again, we need some telepathy, where'd Chuck go? Gene, though, says, hey, I got this one. And I want to throw in really quickly something that I noticed on this particular page, which is something Andy Kubert does and artists regularly forget to do, and that I always just sort of quietly appreciate when it happens, which is someone remembering to draw side panels on Scott's glasses. Yeah, because otherwise he'd be, like, leaking out the side, like putting your thumb on the end of a hose. Yep. So, Gene is sick of basically everyone's bullshit. And that certainly includes the bullshit of Victor Creed. And he tries to get in her head, he tries to be all Hannibal Lecter about it, like, oh, I know how you feel about Logan, but now he's gone and I'm here, how do I make you feel? Victor Creed, for those of you looking for context and coming at this in 2018, is the most obnoxious internet edgelord you've ever met. And Jean? Jean has better things to do. You're a firecracker, Creed, and I'm an atom bomb. I love how succinct and just absolute that line is. It's not the end of her speech, but it could be. I just like the fact that she's referencing narration from Jubilee's dream at the beginning of the issue. Her telepathic powers are so great she can tap into the narrator. This is like when you get really mad at someone for doing something awful in, their, in, in your dream, only he's actually that terrible and she gets to make a callback to it. And it's someone else's dream. But she's not done. She has a lot more to say. You want the truth? There was something between the two of us. A bond. A deep, loving friendship. But you can't understand that. Logan is a man of spirit. He has a soul, Creed. And you, you're afraid to admit how pathetic your life has been. And he demands you know, the glow. And Jean first makes him beg for it, and then once he does, answers. No. Bertie gave you the glow because you threatened her. Well, she's dead, Sabretooth. And you don't scare me. You want the glow? Find it on your own. Deal with what you are. With what you've done. This is such a good scene, and it's such a good Jean scene, and I'm so glad Jean had it, but I also still wish that Psylocke had. Agreed. Like, it's a beautiful scene, and it would have been even more appropriate for Psylocke. And it works. Creed is... scared. I don't know about scared, but he at least has learned a grudging respect for Jean Grey. He's learned that he can't just get whatever he wants by being scary slash playing the victim. And the next day, Jubilee is the one who volunteers to bring Sabretooth his giant breakfast. Like, seriously, it's a giant breakfast. It's like a Parks and Recreation all the bacon and eggs you have style breakfast. I mean, I guess Victor Creed's a pretty big dude. 
And Jubilee tells Jean, I need to do this. Otherwise, I'm just going to be having those nightmares every night. Do you get it? And Jean says, yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. Which brings us to X-Men 29, Return to Hellfire, written by Fabian Nesaza, penciled by Andy Kubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Joe Rosas. Apparently, Sabretooth has gone from we've got to keep him in four-point restraints to he can live in the basement to I guess now he can spar with Psylocke in the danger room wearing big metal gloves. Okay, this would have been another great place to work in Uncanny X-Men number 213, the Psylocke and Sabretooth thing, but they don't. This would have been a really great place for Charles Xavier to rethink all of his choices. Yeah, basically that. Like, I know he's got that even more Hannibal Lecter-looking mask on. I know he has his separate fingered oven mitts on. But still, he's still incredibly dangerous and bloodthirsty. Miles, oven mitts are not made out of metal. Well, Victor Creed's are. Then they're terrible oven mitts. Yeah, how does he even move his fingers in those? There's a lot of liquid metal in Andy Kubert's art, and it's never really explained. It's just sort of there. Maybe they're just covered with LeMay. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that. Now, Xavier, Beast, and Archangel are in the Danger Room control booth looking on as Xavier sort of shakes his bald head at the increasingly inappropriate jokes from two of his earliest students. Something I really, really like about this particular era, and and we we saw it with Gene, and we saw Scott really struggling with it in X-Men Unlimited, is that we're really getting to see the rapport that Xavier and his adult students have sort of reestablished, that he's gradually coming to accept them as peers, which is probably a mistake, given that Warren it goes on to be petulant that ladies haven't been hitting on him enough. But, you know. And we haven't covered this part of the story, but over in Uncanny, Gene and Scott have announced their engagement. So that's very much on Warren's mind at this point. You know what else is on Warren's mind? That he's full of darkness. That he's, he's a bird of prey, a predator, a hawk, and all he wants to do is find another horseman of apocalypse and sit on its shoulder so he can get a better vantage point, stare at things, and then maybe cough up a mouse. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Warren Kenneth Worthington. But no, he bemoans around for a while, and then he gets a piece of fancy and deeply Malgothy perfumed mail, which unfortunately is not from Dracula. I, I really wish it were. I feel like everything that's addressed that that fancily should be from Dracula. But no, it's from the Hellfire Club, inviting him to their annual gala. And Warren's like, ooh, Hellfire Club. And Psylocke's like, oh, fuck yeah, let's hunt humans for sport. Class systems rule. I'm British as hell. Okay, to be fair, she's less of a douchebag about that. But she is a member of the Hellfire Club's British branch because her super wealthy father was a member and it's hereditary. So she's a little bit familiar uh, it turned turn out she's familiar with a much more reasonable branch of the Hellfire Club than the one that we've come to know and, uh, love. Yeah, but you know she's totally hoping they're gonna get to hunt humans for sport. I mean, probably, although that seems more like revanche style at this point. She also at one point says, Now, Warren, let's not go off into any Hamlet-like soliloquies, which is a pretty cruel thing to say to someone whose uncle killed his father and married his mother. I, I wrote that down, too. I know. Because, yeah, Warren's backstory is just straight-up Hamlet. Well, no, it's Hamlet if Claudius were named Dazzler. That sounds like Hamlet, but better. It, it reminds me of this 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 thing I read at some point, which is just a list of things that three monkeys are statistically likely are statistically likely to produce before the entire uh, the entirety of Hamlet. And um one of them is Hamlet, except Horatio is named Elvis. <laughs> I remember that too. Yeah, and it's just, it's such a simple gag, and I really love it. Well, anyway, Archangel and Psylocke get dressed up all fancy, and they do indeed head to the Hellfire Gala. And if there's anyone I associate with the Hellfire Gala, anyone who who I just knew was going to show up on the first page of this, it's uh, Night Thrasher. From the New Warriors. Okay, this actually makes a lot of sense. He did have a gigantic inheritance from his parents. He would probably have inherited his membership from them. They were very wealthy. He does philanthropy. He's also infiltrating. And this scene we'll, we'll see from his perspective in the X-Force New Warriors Child's Play crossover very shortly, which is awesome. I feel strongly for no good reason whatsoever, aside from having seen a lot of cartoons, that any character whose signature thing is a skateboard should always skateboard, including in their civilian life and including at fancy dress events. And I was really disappointed that that didn't happen here. 
I mean, that's that's pretty reasonable, yeah. But I do want to talk about fashion. Warren's just wearing a tux, whatever, who cares? Uh, Psylocke, though, she's got this super fancy nonsense dress that's like this tight teal torso portion with a lacy red decolletage, this tightly pleated red thigh-slitted skirt under this asymmetrical yellow sash and rose and fishnets. She's like, oh, so I've heard this is a gaudy club? Oh, yeah, hold my drink. I, I definitely dug these out from the community th- theater's revival of Oklahoma, but then I spruced them up fancier. <laughs> right. Everyone always forgets that Betsy Braddock used to be a fashion model, this high-class fashion model. Everyone just always remembers that she's the ninja that shows her butt all the time. But I really appreciate when she can go back to being a high-fashion model who still shows her butt all the time. Yeah, so um, there's also a man there named Ronald Parvenu who seems like he's going to be very important, but is absolutely not. I think he's just a character that showed up in Wolverine recently, so it's just a nice little crossover. So, they're not there for very long when they get psychically whammied by someone from behind. And do we, do we, is this a drink cue? I feel like there should be a there's Sage again drink cue where we, you just, she shows up and we drink to forget. Well, it's Sage though, so I feel like maybe you should just, I don't know, vape or something. I can't recommend that. Don't vape. But if you were going to vape anyway, probably you should now. Oh, Sage definitely vapes. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, I don't, Zach, I don't know if you've covered this or not, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'm officially contributing this to the, to the, to the, the Witch X-Men vape, vape canon, canon, Sage absolutely vapes. Well, anyway, this is while Sage is still undercover as Tessa, who's sort of the left-hand woman of whoever's running the Hellfire Club. Turns out she's in deep cover. That's way too complicated. Let's just not worry about it right now. In this case, the person who's running the Hellfire Club is Shinobi Shaw, who is dressed like the Pirate King from the Pirates of Penzance, in keeping with Psylocke's I Raided the Musical Theater Costume Room theme. And and I feel like that's really in character for him. I feel like he I I am imagining him sitting down and be like being like, okay, so what what does the, the Hellfire Club they do fancy anachronistic clothing? Oh dude, I'm gonna be a pirate. Yeah, that sounds basically perfect. And he doesn't want to be alone in dressing up. It always sucks to be the only person with a Halloween costume. So while Warren and Betsy are unconscious, he undresses them and then redresses them in fancy, similarly piratey garb. That's really inappropriate and also kind of bizarre. And I I feel like it's less appropriate than the Morlock thing of, of redressing people in, like, rubber pants. But I don't know, because that's really inappropriate, too. Anyway, it turns out that this is not the first time this has happened. Um, Shinobi Shaw and, and Warren Worthington III, as, as young, terrible children, used to run around Hellfire Club functions together, presumably like stealing liquor and hiding under tables. And now Shinobi wants to be wants Warren to be the white king to his black king in what I presume is a shameless attempt to flatter Warren into explaining how sex works. Now, the last White King was actually a jointly held position by Magneto and Storm, so Warren... If you say yes, and I know you're not going to, but if you were to say yes, you'd have some very big, impressive shoes to fill. So I tried to take notes on the rest of this issue, and then I looked down, and all I had all I all I had written was rich people are not like us about seven times, followed by Eat the Hellfire Club and more progressive tax now. You're not wrong on any of those counts, but it is kind of an interesting conversation in terms of, all right, you're given privilege, how do you handle it, between Warren and Shinobi. And not so much Betsy, because she's mostly being, like, attacked by Shinobi as he's uh, about to rip out her heart so that Warren will listen to Shinobi blather. But it's it's just, like, the two of them complaining at each other and being like no no i'm moodier i'm moodier and 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 more smoldery and ripping off more of my clothes this place is like the gulch gulch of bondage (laughs) you're not wrong i hate the hellfire club so much like i have no problem with bondage aficionados i have no problem with shoddy anachronism i do have problems with some of the consent issues that take place there but in general like i just I I just, just, like, this is why there are guillotines. Well, and that's the thing, because Shinobi's talking about how he used to hate this place when he was a kid, and he's like, but now, now I'm in charge, and now all this is mine, therefore I've won, and Warren's like, no, no, you hated this, and then you chose it? No, if you hate it, just leave, dude. No, no, there is one and only one Black King who is allowed to keep on doing things and having the Hellfire Club, and if you are not Emma Grace Frost, you can sit the hell down. Oh man, she's she's a really great black king these days, it's true. 
Well, anyway, Betsy just psychic knifes Shinobi in the head, and we learn about his traumatic childhood and how he's decided that he can't count on anyone, so he's just going to count on himself. And then Warren and Betsy say, dude, we're, we're out of here. Yeah, yeah. What what Shinobi admits when he gets psychic knived is that he's his own best friend. There's an amazing moment too. Like this this is the climax of the scene as far as I'm concerned, although it's supposed to be the denouement, where Shoss says that she doesn't need or want Warren's pity, and Warren says basically, good, because I've used it all up on myself. Oh, that's such a Warren line. I actually really, really love that line. Because it's also self-aware. Like, he knows what an emo, gothy dick he can be. And he's like, all right, this is part of me. I recognize it. That's step one. I'm going to work on it, but I'm not there yet. He's messing with my Eat the Rich plan because I feel like, as Archangel, he's probably poisonous. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, like a fugu. You'd have to get a really good chef to prepare Archangel a certain specific way or else you'll die. No, I mean, I think he's just pervasively poisonous like i don't know how where else would it come from on the on the flechettes but the more important thing about this and the tragic tragic pirate life of shinobi shaw is that taking over the hellfire club has gotten shinobi no closer to learning what sex is as the narration explains for years he scampered about the halls of this mansion always wanting to know what his father did in the basement below always thinking that, since he could never find it anywhere else, the key to happiness had to be down there. Then he grew up. He opened the door. He walked the halls of this inner circle, the halls of power. But all Shinobi Shaw has found is a room that is as cold, as barren, and as empty as he is. You know, I hadn't interpreted it that way, Jay, until you said it, and uh, now I can't see it any other way. Our headcanon about Shinobi Shaw's entire goal being to find out what sex is, yeah, this issue backs it up. I'm going to go ahead and say. This 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 bit of narration also includes one of my favorite juxtapositions, which is the verb scampered as applied to a supervillain. <laughs> it's true. I can just imagine all the different supervillains scampering around, especially Batrock. I mean, he basically scampers anyway. Well, he leaps. He, he frolics more than scampers. But like a spe- Magneto, Magneto scampering, that's like, that's so good. Capes make scampering even funnier. It's true, it's true. So, anyway, this issue, aside from another delightful chance to hang out with the incredibly, wonderfully awful Shinobi Shaw, also kind of marks the beginning of what's going to gradually turn into a romance between Archangel and Psylocke. They have a lot in common. They both come from places of privilege. They both had their bodies transformed against their will. They both have had to deal with their own inner darkness. And I gotta say, it'll take a long time to get there, but eventually they're going to be a pretty interesting couple. And then they'll just stand on each other's shoulders and watch the horizon. Romance. Speaking of things that we love, hey, listeners, you exist, and you've got questions. Paul asks via email, My ultimate team-up combo would be Gabby slash Honey Badger and Princess Powerful slash Molly Hayes. What would be the story you would pitch for a miniseries featuring this pair? Oh, Paul, I'm so glad you asked that. I will answer your question with another question. Have you ever read Robert McCloskey's Make Way for Ducklings? It would be like that, but more violent. So I really, really loved the Secret Wars Runaways miniseries, where Molly, who of course is a member of the Runaways in the main universe, ended up joining Jubilee's girl gang. So I vote, let's do a less murdery, but still alternate universe and thus non-canonical version of that. We can have Gabby and Molly as the centers of like rival middle school super cliques who gradually come to respect each other and then have to team up and become friends to face a threat even bigger than detention. It would be great. Like we would have sort of mischievous YA girl gang glory nope i want this to be a wholesome story about two perfect rays of sunshine and i want it to revolve around adorable baby animals and as we all know from the x-men first class backup stories ducklings are scientifically the second most adorable baby baby animals in the marvel universe after otters man those backup stories i think it was uh, colleen coover that drew them right yes oh they're so good they're just so adorable they're great. They're, if, if you haven't read X-Men First Class, um, or especially if you've been turned off of X-Men First Class because you didn't like the movie or you assumed it was somehow related to the eponymous movie, it's not. It's it's wonderful. It's, it's Jeff Parker writing and just telling really fun, really good, very like middle grades to adult appropriate 
and fun stories about the original five X-Men. And there are backup stories that Colleen Coover draws and there are ducklings in them. It's good comics. So Eric, also via email, would like to know if classic X-Men backups and added story pages are canonical. In fact, they are all canonical, and some of them are pretty damn significant. So if you're not familiar, Classic X-Men reprinted uh, the X-Men series basically from giant size X-Men number one on until it eventually just sort of stopped. And all of those issues for the first 40-something or so also had these backup stories drawn by John Bolton and written by some Claremont, some Anne Nascenti, some other people, and a lot of them are really, really good. But a lot are also really important. The backup story in Classic X-Men number one, for instance, that was the few pages that laid the groundwork for Logan and Jean's intense attraction that would be referenced again and again and again. The backup story in Classic X-Men number 43, which was the reprint of the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga, gave us our first look at the White Phoenix, who would end up being a really big deal in Grant Morrison's run. And if you're interested in more about that particular story, um, I actually got to talk about that with Zach and Adam on a recent episode of Battle of the Atom, which we'll link to in the, um, as mentioned, to this episode. But perhaps most importantly, the backup story to Classic X-Men number 22, which was around the time the X-Men were in the Savage Land, tells us about Storm getting lost in a Savage Land lake and then finding herself in another dimension on a Sky Pirate crew whose Sky Pirate ship was actually a giant talking fox. So that is a thing and, as we've just been describing, an officially canonical thing. Also, John Bolton draws a lot of them, and John Bolton art is not to be missed. Oh, I don't remember what issue it was, but do you remember the classic X-Men backup story that was the X-Men at a Halloween masquerade, and they were trying to solve a murder while they were all in costume, and it was, like, super dramatic and dark and cool? Yep. Oh, so good. Anyway, what's also good is the fact that uh, you, our listeners, through your financial and other support, let us keep this show ad-free, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional concepts and or characters. So, once again, let us hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. (sighs) Doug O'Keefe. James. You both expected that you would be stepping into what you deem your rightful places claiming power that you thought was yours for the taking, just like you thought you were above the clearly written rules on the back of the box. But oh, how the mighty fall, for in this game that some call life and the rest of us call Scrabble, your names are worth less even than the paltry letters that make them up. And now, I guess, in the room where people aren't playing Scrabble, the mic will go to... Uh, returning thanks star, Sexy Shinobi Shaw. I'm so glad you're awake, my friends. I hope you don't mind. I took the liberty of dressing you up in some of my lamented daddy's sex outfits while I was waiting. Oh, don't worry. The secret of your private parts is safe with me. Now then, my friends, as children, we merely caught glimpses of this place— But thanks to murder, we now have unfettered access to poor Sebastian's sex cave. Brady A. Berman, take yourself and your frock coat to the far corner of the room. What is that horizontal wooden surface? Perhaps one puts ladies on it. For sexing. It looks very fancy, and as any sensual master knows, fancy sex is the best sex. And now, Chris... Oh, you look amazing in that frilly shirt. What are your thoughts about that illuminated apparatus hanging from the ceiling? I'll bet you could dangle any number of nude grown-ups from it. Why, they could sex at all the most mature angles, for minutes or even days at a time. Oh, my friends, this sexual sex cave shall be a playground for our very adult and well-practiced skills. Just as soon as we unlock its sexy, sex-filled secrets. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded at all the most mature angles in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced for minutes or even hours at a time by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every sexy Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. 
Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode and all sorts of horizontal wooden surfaces. Our show is 100% sexy listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free and sexy, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Val Cooper joins a cult. And Multiple Man has a bad day. It's not very sexy. 